Hello, DH Podcast listeners. I'm Rachel Rochester, and today on our second episode, we spoke with Emily Simnett, a multilingual writing specialist at the University of Oregon. We've all been traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday here at UO, so this episode was recorded a few days ago via cell phone in various hotel rooms across the country, and I apologize if our sound quality is a little lower than our previous episode. Without further ado, let's hear from Emily about digital rhetoric. Hello, Emily, and welcome to the Digital Humanities Podcast at the University of Oregon. I was hoping that you might be able to introduce yourself to our listeners. I'm sure. Um, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to talk a little bit about uh, digital rhetoric and digital humanities and the work that I'm doing. Um, I'm a multilingual writing specialist, and I teach in the composition program in the English department. I primarily work with international students and uh, work to support other faculty who are teaching multilingual writers. And I'm also working on a dissertation right now for a PhD in composition and TESOL from the Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Actually, you know, since you bring up your dissertation, I know that your project explores student academic authorship as a multilingual, digitally mediated experience. Could you describe that project a little bit more for us? I'm sure I'd be happy to. Uh, my, my project really stems from my experience working with students and hearing little anecdotes about things that they were doing as they were working on their academic essays. So, uh, for example, one time I was working with a student and we were, were working at on what I had identified as a grammar issue in his paper. And he said, well, that wasn't me, that was Siri. That's Siri's mistake. And hmm. uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, but what I what I have not realized prior to that discussion is that students were in fact using dictation in part of their composing processes. And hmm. you know, that's actually I think that's a great thing. I think it's it's fantastic when students are using the affordances of digital tools to solve their writing problems. But because I didn't know that, I was approaching their text in a way that may not have been the most helpful for that student. Um, and it just it just sort of opens my eyes to, I think, what is a broader mystery of what is really happening when student writers go home to their dorms or their apartments to do the academic essay assignments that we're asking of them. So to, to just get a better understanding of how they're using technologies, uh, I'm planning to do a, a survey and then uh, do some case studies with specific students where I will ask them to use video screen capture technology to record their writing uh, on the multiple screens that they're using. So not just their laptops, but also their cell phones or tablets. And so I can get a sense of what it is they are doing. Um, and I think this will reveal that, that their writing may be more of a social process and more complex than we may be imagining when we're making those academic essay assignments. So you study rhetoric and composition. What kinds of digital work are part of this field? Digital rhetoric scholars generally study how digital texts are invented, how they're put together or composed, and then how they are delivered or read by, by audiences, as well as critically considering the affordances and constraints of the digital technologies that are being used for all kinds of communication purposes. Um, and w one of the things that I think is really interesting about this work is it considers all of these digital tools and these digital writing spaces uh, from Twitter 
to even the how the word processor use uh, you use shapes the way you write, uh, and in turn are being shaped by writers and audiences as they are as, as they are used. Um, all of this work, I think, is really useful for those of us who teach writing because it draws attention to the need to redefine what it means to be literate in the 21st century and to, and to maybe rethink what academic authorship means uh, as well. Thinking about authorship, when you look at how people are writing and claiming ownership or not claiming ownership of, of their ideas or their work in public digital spaces, and then think about how we, uh, especially in the humanities, think about our own academic work and the, and the need to claim and own our ideas, but also the need to provide ways for collaboration and, and to recognize the important work of collaboration, especially in digital humanities type, type projects. I think there's a lot of interesting ways to, to think about that um, in connection between digital, digital rhetoric and digital humanities. Yeah, that's a really interesting connection. So is that the way that you see the work related to digital humanities more generally? I, I see that that's, that's one of the, the ways that the, the two areas overlap. And I think that digital rhetoric and digital humanities have a lot to offer each other. Um, I think that they are both places of methodological experimentation. And I think this is another, like, a really rich uh, place for thinking about how we use digital rhetoric or digital humanities in the classroom. And think because uh, so one of the things that when I think about using digital tools in a writing classroom, uh, I want to think about what research methodologies are offered by digital rhetoric and digital humanities and to help students experience those and practice those. So as I mentioned, I'm planning to use video screen capture in my dissertation. So I'm thinking about how I can use that technology with students and give them experience using that technology for to, to gather data that they might analyze and then write about uh, in their essays for the class. So I, I think that, that kind of methodology, methodological experimentation is a really um, important connection. And then I, I think the thing, one of those things that really attracts me to working with digital humanists is the connection to public humanities. And I think that's another uh, real, uh, another piece that both rhetoric and composition and digital humanities share. Because I think that that connection between what we, in preparing students to be productive and flexible and intellectual members of their local and global communities. I think and that work that we're doing as educators in, in higher education, I think uh, thinking about public humanities and thinking about the civic component that has always been part of rhetoric and composition, those are they're a nice uh, intersection and a, a, good, a good place to, to explore. So one of the larger goal of the composition program at the University of Oregon is to create thoughtful, flexible writers who will need to use writing of all kinds and all kinds of spaces to claim and develop ideas so that they can participate as citizens in complex, the complex local and global communities and the diverse publics that they'll encounter uh, both in their time at the university and then when they graduate and go out into the world thinking about how they can use digital tools 
and also be critical and uh, aware of the ways that tools are shaped, those digital tools are shaped by ideology, and that, that, that nothing that they're using is neutral. I think that's a, that's a really important um, thing that we can, can think about with students in, in our classrooms. Yeah, I think that that's something that so many people miss. I mean, especially even just thinking about this recent election cycle where there's been so much discourse about media platforms and how they've shaped how people view political candidates. Mm -hmm. um, and so many people sort of went in thinking, you know, Twitter is a neutral platform or Facebook is a neutral platform. And I think maybe some of those myths are being dispelled right now. Yeah, I, I think this is, and this is a great opportunity to draw attention to the ways that um, how writing in those spaces, how, how the format shapes the writing. So Twitter is very short. Um, it's very immediate. It can be very emotional, and then it can, and it can cause immediate response. And then, but then it does create a overall a, a body of uh, or an archive of tweets, a hashtag that then can have or has appeared to have a pr pretty profound influence on the election or the way we're, we're viewing the election or other contemporary conflicts. When I think the sort of the uh, People had been thinking that the traditional news media may have had more of an influence or some of the other more traditional forms of media. That that kind of event or event like the election or other conflicts that, have, that are more recent really points to the need to help students understand how whatever platform it is that they are using or reading or consuming their information um, they, they need to think critically about it. There, there's just more. There's, I, I think, more of a need to think critically of, of all of all of our writing and reading habits right now. Right, absolutely. And how do we get students to be engaged and think critically about writing in a platform that they use regularly, even outside of the classroom? Mm -hmm. It's a really important oh. thing to think about. In your recent article, "Teaching for Agency: From Appreciating Linguistic Diversity to Empowering Student Writers." Um, you speak a little bit more about Twitter, and you talk about how you encourage students in your writing classroom to, to participate in an optional, ongoing Twitter chat about writing, language, and identity. Do you find that students participate in that optional chat? Well, you know, with that, that uh, chat started, it's one I did for several years when I worked at a previous institution, but that I, most students did participate in some level. And I think it's because it arose out of uh, actual practice in the classroom. So I started using Twitter in the classroom when I uh, discovered that many of my students at the time, uh, they were all uh, primarily from the Middle East. They were all active on Twitter, and it was an important uh, literacy tool for them. And so I asked them, and we worked together to develop a way that we could use Twitter in the classroom. And it, it started very small. We used it where students could share ideas about thesis statements or make small comments on the, the things that we were reading, and then we'd look at them uh, live, projected onto to the to a to a screen. Um, and then from there, because students were already comfortable with that technology, um, we expanded the chat, and we would have chats outside of class. And then because uh, you can archive things through hashtags. I archived and saved all of those tweets, and then from from term to term, 
students could we would go back and we we could we might look at a series of tweets together and do a rhetorical analysis of that and think about what what was happening, how students were gaining authority, what was missing in these short descriptions of their projects, and then from there students would it could enter into the conversation and, and mostly it was about academic writing, being a multilingual writer in the US, being an international student. So most of the, the themes on that that chat of uh, we had a, a hashtag that was related to the class where they they continued on and they provided a really useful source for analysis. I think that by foregrounding the assignment, by doing the analysis of what other students had already, how they had already been using the platform, helped students who then in later terms who might not have been uh, as familiar with tw Twitter. It gave them a model. It gave them a, something to, to think about and look at. And then we went, most students did participate to some amount. I didn't grade it. Um, mm -hmm because I don't feel, I didn't feel comfortable attaching that to formal evaluation because I think it was more about um, thinking about, I, I wanted to connect it to student choice. And I right. want students to, you know, think about, I, they should be able, I mean, they can't choose whether or not they're going to write their essay for the class. Well, I mean, they can, I guess. They can make that choice, but there's a, <laughs> there's a consequence for that. But if I'm, you know, wanting to do something experimental, um, or something, I would rather present it as a choice. And in thinking that we have all of these various choices to uh, write publicly about our ideas, that it, it was important for me to say, you know, that this is not a choice for you. This is not how you want to share your academic ideas. And here's, here's some options or some other ways that you can still do the critical thinking and the work that I want you to do to learn about writing in a space without actually having to, to do that. Um, so one thing that some students did is they created their, a Twitter account just for the class so that their friends would not, and family would not suddenly see them tweeting about their academic essays instead of sports mm -hmm. or whatever it was they normally <laughs> used it for. But uh, I also would have students write short pieces of information and, and then just email it to me or I could share their tweets from my account um, and just credit it as a student if they wanted to remain anonymous. You know, there's all sorts of ways that you can honor students' comfort and agency in being public with their ideas in the classroom. Yeah, I was really struck in your article, you talk about how you foreground agency as a central construct in the teaching of writing. And, and I hear you talking so much about agency, mentioning these digital tools. You know, students have the agency to choose whether or not they want to participate in this Twitter chat um, in a way that they don't necessarily when deciding whether or not to turn in a formal assignment. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how digital tools can help foreground agency in the writing classroom. So, I, mean, I think that it's one of the one of the things that is you know, when I'm thinking about what's transferred out of a writing classroom. So, what do I want? students, what knowledge do I hope that they have uh, when they leave my writing class? I certainly want to give them experience in writing certain kinds of academic essays and uh, thinking through arguments in a certain kind of way. So I, I, I know that that's one thing that's important. But I also want them to be more reflective and have some 
metacognitive awareness of the available choices for, for writing and the uh, possible consequences of writing in certain kinds of ways or in certain kinds of spaces. Um, so what I think that like using this, using Twitter as, a, as an example um, and, ha and giving students con some control over whether or not they are, are writing in that space is one way to help students gain more control and intentionality over their acts of writing. So we, we do a lot of writing that we don't we don't really think about what it is is that we're we're doing. So I mean, for example, when we're writing an academic essay, we're probably pretty aware of that that we're writing an academic essay and we need some sort of make some sort of communication to our audience that this is our argument and this is how we're going to develop our argument. But we write in a lot of other kinds of spaces, uh, like instant messaging is a big one for students. And we don't necessarily, or aren't necessarily aware of what it is where the choices we're making or intentions when we're doing that. So um, one of the studies that uh, I've been reading with interest recently uh, out of Michigan State is looking at how Chinese students or international students here in the U.S. use instant messaging to coordinate with other Chinese students and to manage their academic lives on campus and probably even uh, coordinate on writing assignments and at least talk about the, the different kinds of academic assignments they're doing and help each other in homework even across different sections and different classes. So if we are, if we want to help students understand what it is they're, they're doing uh, when they're engaging in writing in that way or that social aspect of writing, then we can um, say, okay, instant messaging is a form of writing. Let's think about, about what, this, what this does. What, let, let's notice what, what we're doing when we're using instant messaging or when we're using Twitter. Um, what um, other kinds of ways could we be using this? Or are there some things that are harmful when we're using this? Um, so then that whole concept of noticing what is happening, I think, helps students exert more control over all of their writing um, and a better understanding of what is going to be effective communication and what is going to be less effective um, and what might be actually dangerous to do, you know, especially in a, a social public social media space. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, one of the things that you talk about is you mentioned it briefly earlier, so I want to return to it for a second. Is is using Twitter during a presentation in the classroom? And you mentioned screening a video and having students field questions about that video uh, while they were doing the screening. Um, and and speaking about things that might be disadvantageous when using digital medias. You know, do you think there's any kind of a trade-off with using this? sort of live technology during presentations between engagement and focus? Absolutely, there's a, there's a trade-off. Uh, and but I don't think that, that just because, so I wanted to challenge the idea that just because we're not on a cell phone that we're paying close attention to what is happening in a room. Um, Good point. So, <laughs> so that, 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 but, but I also, I do think that you know, the, the self, the smartphone, can be a source of distraction, and I have struggled with that in my own, uh, in sitting through pre my presentations and, and 
meetings and in other kinds of places that are you know, not related to, to teaching in the classroom. But I, so I think that, that the, one of the things that having students comment directly on a presentation or during the presentation is, is it can almost be like a note-taking thing. So they might not hear everything in the presentation, but they're looking, listening for something that catches their attention or that they think that they might have something to say back to. And so it's focused, I think, in sort of a nice way on something that is important to them. And so I think it can actually help for focusing when you're using bringing technology into the classroom is that you do give up a measure of control because you cannot you, you cannot be, be hovering behind every student and making sure that they are actually looking at the thing that you want them to look at, whether it's uh, the ongoing Twitter chat during the presentation or maybe you're having them use their cell phones to or their smartphones to look up to access the, the library databases or, or whatever it is, you, you do give up some control when you have student invite students to use technology that you can't see that what, they, what it is they're, they're doing. Um, but I think that ultimately students are responsible and they're, they want to learn too. They're committed to their learning. Talking with students before you bring technology into in any way into the classroom about the trade-offs, the affordances and constraints of what it is you're going to be doing, and just bringing those out in the, into the open is a way to address those concerns. Not Maybe not alleviate them perfectly, but at least making everyone aware of what they are. And you might realize some limitations or affordances or, or something that was really exciting about technology in asking your students beforehand what they think of maybe a particular assignment or a particular way you're going to use technology. But one of the things that I have been doing in my classes is at the start of the term, I have a technology survey and it asks a whole bunch of questions about what kinds of technologies students have, how they're using them, how valuable they think they are in writing or how distracting they think they are when they're trying to, to use them for writing. I've asked them about problems that they have with technology uh, related to connection or um, formatting things in words. So all, a really long list of questions about their own technology experience. And then I do this in a, as a Qualtrics survey, so then we can look at the aggregated results together as a class. And from that, we develop a technology policy for our classroom for that term. And if I'm planning to use Twitter in that class, or I'm pl planning to use um, video screen capture, or whatever digital technologies I'm planning to use, that will become part of the discussion. And Usually what this means is there'll be some sort of compromise about whether or how cell phones or smartphones can, when and how they can be used during class. So a lot of my students are all multilingual writers, so the smartphone is an important thing for them to use to be able to translate, uh, to look up uh, words that are coming up in, in discussion that are new for them. So I I definitely want them to be using them in that way because that's helpful for them in class. Um, so we might, that will be part of our policy 
But of course, it is not helpful for students to be on their instant messaging or their Facebook or their WeChat or whatever it is during class. So we set some ground rules. And if you if you involve students in that process, then I think that you, you have a better result. And some of those things, one of the things that I have started doing because of this is having moments in class where so if, if students finish uh, a task early and they're waiting for other students to, to finish up, rather than immediately going to the cell phone, uh, which is which may or may not be acceptable based on the policy we set as a class, I've been telling students, take the next 60 seconds to zone out or take a few deep breaths or just try to relax and prepare for the next onslaught of information in this class or whatever it is you're heading into for, for the next part of your day. Do you find they take you up on it? <laughs> I do. I mean, I don't know what they're thinking in their head. But they, they will, you know, I, I will just ask them. And, and I've had, and for the most part, students will, will do that. Uh, I know that that's important for me to do uh, occasionally. Is I, I do want to, whenever I have a spare second, I'm like, oh, I need to check my email. I've got all these things that I, that I need to do. But so it's sort of been this nice benefit for me to, okay, I'm going to take 60 seconds and just breathe a little and get prepared for the next the next thing that I've got to do. Well, and I can imagine it has some real benefits to go from being very tuned in and connected and focused on being tuned in and connected to taking a moment to pause and think and evaluate what that difference is. Well, I love that idea of sort of creating collaborative pedagogy with the students in your classroom. I think that's really interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and speak with us. Is there anything that you would like to add before we go? Why I'm interested in, in attending the uh, events that the digital human uh, in the digital humanities at University of Oregon and all of the the things that work that the program is doing is thinking about opportunities to to collaborate and talk more about these these issues. Um, I think that there's there's a lot of really uh, exciting work that can be done when we talk about the different ways we're using digital technologies in our research and in our teaching and and I hope that I, I look look forward to more cross-pollination um, as the program develops. Excellent. And listeners, if you have ideas for collaboration or if you'd like to reach out to Emily, you can reach her at... It's E-S-I-M-N-I-T-T e at uoregon.edu. And we'll go ahead and put that up on our blog also. Um, and as always, you can always leave us comments and we can think about collaboration in a more public forum, too. Thank you so much, Emily. That's wonderful. You've thought about this so much. I love listening to you talk about it. It's inspiring.